Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Carols for the King. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. We are continuing our series uh, called Carols for the King this morning by unwrapping some of the Christmas songs that we grew up singing. Uh, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 1 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder that you received when you came in this morning. And if you forgot your Bible, that's okay. Just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We can loan you a Bible. We want you to have a copy. We won't shame you for not having one. We'd rather share a copy of God's Word with you. The theme verse for this series that I've been encouraging you to memorize with me this month is 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. If it's not underlined in your Bible yet, I'd encourage you to do so, highlight it. Uh, If I was to be having a funeral service for myself next week or to die tomorrow, I, I would want this verse read at my funeral service. I would want 1 Timothy 1 15 on my on my tombstone. Uh, let's read it out loud together. You can use either the version on your notes or you can read it off the screen behind me. The Apostle Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Besides the fact that this verse captures the essence of the Christmas story in one succinct sentence, uh, I notice how the Apostle Paul sets up the truth that he's going to declare in verse 15 with two adjectives. He says, trustworthy and deserving. He is saying that the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world is dependable, proven, and therefore worthy of our belief. O Holy Night is one of my favorite Christmas carols. I I think I could say it is my favorite Christmas carol. And um, as we continue to work our way through this series, uh, it was hard to resist wanting to unpack this one and tell the story behind the song. Uh, You'll notice on the the screen behind me a, a little slide that shows a succinct history of the hymn But O Holy Night uh, was written in 1847 by a French wine inspector named Placide Capot. And pardon my French, it's not real good. Although not known for being a church attender, he was known in his small French town for being a very good amateur poet. And so after a local parish priest asked uh, Placide to pen a poem that could be used in Christmas Eve Mass that year, he read, uh, Mr. Capot went to Luke chapter 2 and he read the Christmas story from Luke 2. And then sat down and wrote in words, uh, using the lyrics that we just sung, trying to imagine what it would have been like to be there that night that Christ was born. Not long after finishing the poem, uh, Placide uh, reached out to a friend of his Uh, a famous composer at that time named Adolf Adams to see if Mr. Adams could put it to music. 
Another fascinating twist in this story is that Adams was also not a Christian. In fact, he was Jewish. Meaning that Mr. Adams did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God and did not celebrate Christmas. But despite this, Adams was able to write a beautiful score that was performed three weeks later at Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, 1847. O Holy Night quickly became a standard that was performed at Christmas Eve services for the next few years. That is, until Placide left the church, or, well, he kind of was on the fringes of the church, and he really never professed faith in Christ, but um, I suspect maybe the priest that asked him to write the Christmas poem was maybe trying to get him into the church, maybe giving him something to do that could reel him in. But uh, unfortunately, Placide went and joined uh, a controversial socialist political movement. And then... After that happened, the church, the French Catholic Church, found out that the composer, Adolf Adams, was Jewish. And so because of the author of the lyrics not being a believer and joining the socialist movement, and because of Adams, the composer, being Jewish, the French Catholic Church banned the song from being sung in their churches. Despite its banishment, though, the song maintained its popularity and continued to be sung in the homes of French Catholics during the holiday season for the next few years. Around 1857, American songwriter John Dwight heard the French version of this carol and uh, was deeply moved by it and felt compelled to introduce it to America. And being a passionate abolitionist, Mr. Dwight especially loved the verse that says, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. So keeping the original meaning intact, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dwight translated the uh, song from French to English and then published it in several songbooks of that era and it became a Christmas standard in our country around the turn of the 20th century. Now, uh, so I like to list some distinctives of the carols when I'm talking about them. And uh, besides the fact that uh, O Holy Night was written by unbelievers, that's almost unheard of for Christmas songs because, as you've noticed in the previous carols that I've unwrapped in this series, they were written by people that love the Lord. Well. Besides that, this is a special carol, and it's distinct from other songs of the season at least two other ways. Legend has it that on Christmas Eve 1871, during the Franco-Prussian War, an unarmed French soldier boldly jumped out of his trench and sang all three verses of O Holy Night to the enemy who was just a few yards away. After this, a German soldier who was on the other side of the battlefront uh, stood up unarmed and sang Martin Luther's From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. And the story goes that this interchange led to both armies observing a 24-hour ceasefire over Christmas Day that year. Another distinctive for O Holy Night is that it's believed to have been one of the first songs ever played 
on the radio. In 1906, a university professor in Pittsburgh named Reginald Fessenden was experimenting with this new technology of radio, and one evening during the Christmas season, he read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, and then picked up a violin and played O Holy Night over the airwaves. This shocked radio operators on ships and in newspaper offices around the region because at that time, this new technology of radio had not been used for music, to broadcast music. And so it sort of opened the doors and opened people's minds to what could be done with this new medium. There are some key terms worth mentioning in the song. Uh, like most other carols, O Holy Night contains some unique terms because of the time period and the country in which it was written. The first verse uses the phrase, in sin and error pining, to describe, uh, basically what it means is it's describing the wasting away that a sinful, unsaved people were enduring on earth before Christ was born. To pine means to yearn, to suffer with longing. Uh, it sometimes was used in classical literature uh, when one lover would talk about missing another lover and pining for, for their uh, soulmate. It means to also desperately anticipate relief. The phrase, the slave is our brother, is also worth mentioning because, oh, it's very controversial at that time. If not revolutionary. Because in the era in which this song was written, for Placida Capo to write in 1847, for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression will cease, uh, keep in mind this is before the American Civil War had taken place. And then, by the time the song reached America in the late 19th century, the changes that that war was supposed to bring had not yet been fully implemented and accepted. And so you can imagine how some people probably in the North liked the song and churches in the South probably didn't like the song because of the lyric, what it said. O Holy Night, though, eloquently declares three truths about the Christmas story that can be found in the scriptures. The first being in Luke, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, and here's uh, the first one you can write down on your outline. The reason for the Christmas story is our sin. The reason for the Christmas story is our sin. This carol reminds us of a, a couple truths that God's word is already, has already declared. That we desperately needed to be saved and that our desperation was so helpless we couldn't save ourselves. In sin, in error, pining is a reference to the part of the Christmas story we find in Matthew chapter 1. Now let me give you some context before I read a few verses here. Matthew chapter 1 uh, gives us a, a peek at Joseph's response when he finds out that his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant. And she's pregnant with a child that is not his own. Uh, keep in mind that in those days, in Jewish culture, being pregnant out of wedlock was frowned upon greatly and uh, brought scorn upon such couples. And for this reason, Joseph wanted to call off the engagement quietly and divorce her and but as you'll soon see, an angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream and tells him to do otherwise. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 with me. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let me just stop there and uh, explain a couple things from these verses. Uh, you shall call his name Jesus. In the original language, uh, Greek scholars call this phrase the future indicative mood. Now, here's what that means. The angel is making a statement about the future that is so certain it's as if it already happened. Literally, the text reads, you will call. Now this is, this is just to give you a sense of understanding why this is important. Uh, it's the same voice, and I hope this helps you relate in some way, it's the same voice that your parents spoke to you when you were little when they said, you will clean your room before you go outside and play, or you will clean your room and you'll get a consequence if you don't. And you knew they meant business, and you knew that if you chose not to clean your room, the future was certain to be not bright for you. Or, because uh, you'd be dead, grounded, or both. And so, um, or it was like the time in Star Wars when Obi-Wan Kenobi uses Jedi powers on the stormtroopers and said, these are not the droids you're looking for. And the stormtrooper replied, you're right. These are not the droids we're looking for. I, I think Joseph realized, okay, I will call his name Jesus. I, I, I will marry her. Now he had to be named Jesus. And by the way, it's significant the fact that Joseph didn't get to name Jesus himself was significant because in Jewish culture, fathers were the ones that named their children and they were the ones that had the sole authority to do so. It was part of their heritage and legacy. And so, in a sense, Joseph's right, at least according to the culture, to do that was being overruled by the Lord and the angel. He had to be named Jesus. And here's why. The angel says in verse 21, in the second half of the verse, for he will save his people from their sins. We see God's sovereign hand even in the details of Jesus' name. The Greek word for Jesus is Jesus, and it's derived from a Hebrew root that means Yahweh saves. As is the case many times in the scriptures, God was going to give his son a name that would both describe who he is and what he would be called to do. This means that God the Father intentionally chose a name 
for the Savior of the world that would remind the world of the salvation that Jesus offers. So, thus, every time the Jews and the Gentiles said Jesus' name, they would hear and know it meant Yahweh saves. Reminds me of the time back in Genesis when the Lord told uh, Abraham and Sarah after they laughed at the possibility of God enabling them to have children in their old age. And the Lord says, okay, well, just for that, you're going to call him Isaac when I give you this son. And Isaac in the Hebrew means she laughs. And so every time I read that story in Genesis, I always wonder what it was like when Isaac was growing up and Sarah had to call him in for dinner. Isaac, it's time to eat. Come on in from playing. And, and, and she's being reminded every time she laughs. Come on in. It's time to eat. She laughs. Now you sit down. She laughs, and you better obey. You know, just for the rest of of her life, she was reminded she laughed at God and doubted God. Well, interestingly, um, when Helen Keller was a young girl, the famous blind and deaf author was taken to the Reverend Philip Brooks for spiritual instruction. Brooks was a prominent American preacher from Boston who ministered in the late 19th century. He is perhaps best known for writing the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. When Brooks and Keller met, he told her who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for us and for her specifically. And as she heard the gospel, her face lit up and she spelled out on Brooks's hands these words. I knew all along there must be someone like this, but now I know his name. And now you do too. He's Jesus, Jesus, Yahweh saves. So here's an application that comes to mind. We, we want to do, be doers of God's word, and I, I like to share applications because um, Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. And James says in James 1 uh, that we should be doers, not just hearers of God's word. And then if we do God's word, we'll receive blessings. So, so what can we do now that we've read Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 21? Well, one that comes to mind is to celebrate that Christmas solved our biggest problem. To celebrate that Christmas solved our biggest problem. You see, it was God's great love for, for us that made him willing to offer the undeserved gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. But until you can admit being lost without Christ, you can't be found in Christ. No Christian can appreciate being found without remembering they were lost either. The Christmas story loses its wonder if we begin to think that we deserve presence for being good instead of deserving hell because we've been bad. And according to the scriptures, we've all been bad. The Christmas story, though, possesses an unlimited supply of hope because no matter what problems we face here on earth, our biggest problem has already been taken care of. If we don't sin, there's no need for Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no Christmas. So just follow the logic backwards. We have Christmas because we have Jesus. Why do we have Jesus? Because Matthew one twenty one says we needed to be saved from our sins. 
So the reason for the Christmas story, therefore, is point number one, our sin. Here's number two on your outline. The second truth that O Holy Night tells us is that the response to the Christmas story should be our worship. The response to the Christmas story should be our worship. We just sang in the, the beautiful chorus, starts, fall on your knees. How interesting that an unbeliever, a French winemaker, would write in the chorus of the song that the response to the newborn Savior should be falling on our knees. He probably got this from Matthew chapter 2. If you would, just flip over a page and look at Matthew 2 with me. And let me give you a little context. This is after Jesus has been born, possibly two years later. He may have been a toddler at this point. But we're told that there were wise men who traveled from the east who set out on a two-year journey at the point, the, the, the night that he was born. It took them two years to get to where Jesus was. After they visited the evil king Herod for directions, the wise men followed the star of Bethlehem until they arrived at Joseph and Mary's home. And so if you would look at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The wise men, it's fascinating to me. In fact, uh, there are some scholars and there is some evidence that show that they too were not believers, that they were pagan astrologers. And, and they, it's interesting, though, that they, they threw themselves on the ground as a sign of reverence and devotion to the baby king. In the scriptures, kneeling in worship was the norm, not the exception that it is today. Let me just give you a few examples uh, on the screen behind me. In Psalm 95, the psalmist invites us to worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. In Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 11, we're told that whenever demon-possessed people saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Jesus proved Peter wrong about how to catch fish, Peter fell to his knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Saul uh, encountered the risen Savior and became Paul, Saul fell on his face and surrendered his heart to the Lord and became the Apostle Paul. In John 18, 6, when a detachment of soldiers, 600 soldiers, accompanied by Judas, came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And the soldiers declared, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I am he. 
And at that point, the text tells us 600 fully armed Roman soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. That passage always blows my mind. Oh, what it would have been like to have been there. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 14, when John describes the worship that is going on in heaven right now, he mentions 24 elders surrounding the throne of God, kneeling, bowing in worship. So what's my point? Well, if unbelievers and demons that enter the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ can bow down before him, then why can't we? In the scriptures, bowing is a sign of surrender and submission. Author and pastor A.W. Tozer explains why this is important when he wrote this. Worship should be a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder. It is, a delightful, it is delightful to worship God, but it is also a humbling thing. And the person who has not been humbled in the presence of God will never be a worshiper of God at all. They may be a church member who keeps the rules, obeys discipline and tithes, but they'll never be a worshiper unless they are deeply humbled. You know, here at Vanguard, we're committed to uh, lifting Jesus high so that people can bow in biblical worship. But we will not do what some churches have been doing these days, and that is taking Jesus down a notch so people can be lifted up. That is not honoring to the Lord, and that is never good. Jesus himself said that if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And so that's why we're committed to doing that here as a church. And so this is a good segue to our application for point number two. We must bow down in order to see Jesus lifted up. Jesus can't be lifted up if we're lifting ourselves up or maybe refusing to bow. Even John the Baptist acknowledged this when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. When was the last time you bowed in worship? because you were so deeply moved and appreciated what Jesus had done for you. Every time that Christmas rolls around, our worship should get a spiritual recharge because we've been reminded of how good that God has been to us. It ought to give us a shot in the arm or a shot of spiritual adrenaline into the new year because we just revisited the core truths of the gospel and what God has done for us and why he did it. And so the appropriate response to the Christmas story should be our worship, but not just eh, going through the motions, boring, stale worship. No, 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 no. Joyful, passionate, celebratory worship that matches what the carols talk about. Even the unbeliever, Placide Capot, recognized there should be joy in our worship at Christmas time. Finally, here's the third truth that this carol tells us, and that is that the result of the Christmas story is peace. The result of the Christmas story is peace. The second verse of O Holy Night 
declares his gospel is peace. It's a reference to what the angels declared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, the night our Savior was born. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 2 with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I'll read a few verses from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 10. In the first seven verses, we're told about the census that Caesar Augustus had called. In verse seven, we're told that Mary, the virgin, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And then we're told in, in uh, verses eight and nine that uh, the angel, the angels of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. And in here in verse 10, we pick up what that interaction looked like. And the angels said to them, the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Well, the peace that the angels are referring to here is referring to those with whom God is pleased are the ones that get the peace. Uh, it's, this is a commonly misinterpreted verse because the King James translation for centuries rendered this uh, uh, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And then, sadly, the, the world has taken that in and, and taken it to mean there should be peace on earth, meaning everybody should get along on earth and we should all be good to each other. That's kind of how it gets twisted. But a more accurate rendering of it would be in the NIV or the ESV translation. It's, it's referring to God is pleased with those who give their hearts to his son, Jesus Christ, and they get to have peace with God. Because the scriptures describe those that don't know Christ as being at odds with him, enemies with God, under his wrath, not having peace with him. Or as you hadn't heard me explain a couple weeks ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, they are not reconciled to God yet. But through Christ, they can be reconciled and restored to a relationship with him. So these are the people that get peace with God. Those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a Sunday school teacher leading his, uh, her class through a lesson on the Christmas story, and so she asked the child, excuse me, the room full of children, what is peace? And after a brief pause, a wise young boy raised his hand and said, peace is when you, you feel all smooth inside. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Peace is when, it's when things are good between you and the Lord, where you, you are trusting him for your salvation and what he's doing in your life, and he is pleased with how you're living your life. And so that leads us to the application. Make sure you're at peace with God. Make sure you're at peace with God. 
the gospel is supposed to lead to peace with God. So if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means making sure that you're walking as closely with him as possible. It means that you're not procrastinating obedience or repentance. It means that you've made him your first love. And that the fact that he's your first love can be seen on your calendar and in your checkbook. And if you've not yet received the Lord as your Savior, it means making peace with God by admitting you're a sinner and then by faith in Christ, trusting in him alone for your salvation. And if you have questions about how to unwrap that peace, the gift of salvation that Jesus offers, I'd love to speak to you after the service or love to meet you for coffee and explain it further. So, O Holy Night. O Holy Night reminds us that the reason for the Christmas story is our sin. It, the response of the Christmas story for us should be our worship. And that, thirdly, the result of the Christmas story is his peace. God made it possible for us to have peace with him. You've heard me say already that one of the secrets to making this Christmas not just another Christmas is learning the meaning behind the songs of the season. I hope this carol takes on a special meaning for you because of what it is saying about the night Christ was born. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for taking the initiative. Thank you that you removed the burden of us having to try and earn our salvation or trying to please you by sending your son to be born in a manger and then to grow up and to die on a cross for us. Father, I want to pray for those that are here today that may not know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, would you reveal, first of all, their sinfulness to them. Open their eyes and help them to see how fallen they are. Help them to see your holiness and then to see the love and the grace and the mercy you've shown through Jesus. Lord, would you help them to see that through Christ, their sin can be put on him and they can exchange, have his perfect life. That they can have his righteousness while he takes on their sinfulness. That through Christ, they can be restored and redeemed and reconciled to you. Father, for those that have made this life-changing decision but maybe have struggled to have peace because they're anxious or they're worried about things in their lives or maybe what you're doing or not doing, Lord, please, would you minister to them? Through your spirit, would you, would you work, Lord, to, to, to give them the peace that surpasses all understanding? Would you remind them in gentle, subtle ways that you've got this, that you're in control and working for their good? And finally, Lord, we thank you that we're, we're reminded once again that 
your, your sovereign hand and your providence is so powerful and so pervasive that you can even use unbelievers to write a song that declares the gospel for the next century. That unbelievers would realize the joy that we should have as professing believers at Christmas time. Would you help us, Lord, to achieve that? We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.